Hey guys, let me tell you about the sponsor for today's episode. Podcorn is a marketplace connecting podcasters to amazing podcast opportunities such as the one I'm doing right now. They have host read ads, interview segments, and more. The great thing about Podcorn is there is no middleman. Podcasters of all sizes can browse and pick opportunities right on the platform. You set your own rates and you collaborate with brands directly. The best thing is that you never give up any rights to your podcast and Podcorn will support you every step of the way to ensure that you are protected and compensated for the work you do. Click the link on my show notes page to sign up to Podcorn and start browsing sponsorship opportunities today. The American History Podcast, Season 4, Episode 8, Chang and Mao, Part 2. This is Tokyo Road. Are you listening? All you fine boys in your comfortable foxhole, listen Welcome, friends and listeners, to Season 4, Episode 8, Chang and Mao, Part 2. Now, last time we looked at both of these monumental figures from birth up to the early 20th century. This is another long and involved episode, so let's just get right into it. Today, we'll be continuing their story up to the outbreak of fighting in Manchuria. So, let's hop in our time machine and head over to China in the early 20th century. This week, our song of the week is Blooming Flower and Full Moon by Zhou Xuan. We'll see you in a few minutes. Okay, so last time we left off with Mao. This time, let's start off the episode and switch back to Chiang. In 1913, as we noted last time, the revolution, led by Sun Yat-sen, was in tatters, many of its leaders in exile, including Sun, over in Japan. In December 1913, Chiang had his first meeting with Sun, 
who, impressed by his dedication to the cause, decided to send him back on a dangerous mission over into China. Thus, in the spring of 1914, Chiang went back to Shanghai. His mission was to try and get the scattered remains of the revolutionary underground reorganized, as well as to lift their morale. The mission was not exactly successful, with several of Chiang's men being arrested, and he himself narrowly escaping back over to Japan. Next, Sun sent him to Manchuria to see if an alliance with one or more of the local warlords was a possibility. Again, the mission proved fruitless. However, Chiang, in a letter back to Sun, noted that with the outbreak of war between the European powers, Japan would look to expand its influence in East Asia. Chiang was correct in his analysis. On January 18, 1915, Japan issued the 21 demands to Yuan Shikai, amongst which were demands for de facto Japanese control of Manchuria, as well as the cession to Japan of German colonial rights in Shandong and Fujian, the province that's directly opposite from Taiwan. Further demands, had they been met, would have effectively turned China into a semi-colony of Japan. Now, it was at this point that Sun was at his lowest. Either unconcerned or uninformed of the sentiment back home, Sun, who was still hoping for large-scale Japanese aid in his struggle to create a unified government, with himself at the head, of course, proposed to surrender even more Chinese sovereignty than what the Japanese were asking for. This led to the Chinese government accusing Sun of being a sellout, and many of his followers abandoning him. However, Chang was one of the few who remained loyal. He believed it was important to, quote, first pacify the interior, then resist the external, end quote. This was essentially in line with the view espoused by Sun, who believed it was first necessary to oust the government of Yuan Shikai and then create a unified and modern government. Again, Chang was hiding out in the French concession of Shanghai. Today, this area is still a popular tourist destination in the city as it retains many of its tree-lined streets as well as original buildings, but I digress. Chen Kimai and Chen Kai-shek, along with 700,000 American dollars, were again trying to recruit for Sun Yat-sen's revolution. However, Chen was assassinated. Chang ended up giving the eulogy at his funeral, a speech that was more about him than it was about the recently departed. The speech shows a 28-year-old revolutionary with high ambitions, a side of his character that he'd kept private up to this point. Now, we could go on with the analysis of Chang's life at this time, but as historian Jay Taylor notes, there are some issues with Chang's personal diaries. And while he did journal for most of his life, the entries from this time period are redacted. Speculation is that some uh, of that redaction was done by Chang himself, but others were done either by his son or family members before they were turned over to the Hoover Institute. So we're going to just skip that, uh, that whole period and move forward to the end of World War I and the outbreak of revolution in Russia. Both momentous events would affect not only the world in general, but have major consequences for China. First, let's look at the end of World War I and the Paris Peace Conference. The Chinese were looking to recover all of Germany's ill-gained rights in China. Interestingly enough, President Wilson was supportive of the Chinese position, but the Europeans overruled him, and thus about half of the German territories were formally given over to Japan. This led to mass demonstrations in Peking. According to Chang, quote, the agitation against Japan was unprecedented, end quote, and indicative of the Chinese people's fighting spirit and patriotism. Chang believed this was evidence of the revival of China. Now, I bring this up as I think it's something which Chinese officials still think often about. Whenever the West, i.e. the United States, starts trying to preach to China 
I bring this up as I think it's something which Chinese officials still think often about. Whenever the West, i.e. the United States, starts trying to preach to China, I'm sure this is something that they're thinking about. The West often talks about rights and whatnot, but it's empty and hollow. When the United States talks about international law and the rule of law in the Chinese mind, and by that I mean government officials, we are hypocritical. We talk the talk, but in the end, might makes right. Just look at the actions of the United States and the British over the decades. It's okay for the United States to remove a duly elected regime in Iran, or Chile, or Guatemala, but not for China to reclaim territory that is, historically speaking, Chinese. Anyway, enough of that for now. The aftermath of World War I would have a massive impact on not just world history in general, but on China amongst others in particular. Indeed, historians such as Hugh Strachan note that the world we live in was not actually made by World War II, but it was made by World War I. So, first let's look at the Versailles Treaty. The Chinese, having aided the Allies in the Great War, sent a delegation to Paris. Actually, I believe they sent two delegations. They hoped to see the conference put an end to foreign domination of their country, but they would leave disappointed on this topic. The German concessions and rights in China were not fully returned. 50% of them were instead awarded to Japan for having sided with the Allies. Needless to say, this did not sit well with the Chinese. Demonstrations erupted throughout the country and directly led to the May 4th movement. Now, prior to 1911, China's problems were blamed on the Manchu dynasty. This was because, as I noted in episode 4.6, it, the Manchu dynasty, was seen as foreign. Remember, while China and it is a multi-ethnic country, most of the population are Han Chinese. Prior to 1911, it was easy to blame China's problems on the Manchus. However, that excuse was now gone. China was now a republic, but it was bedeviled by internal strife and warfare. Further, it was still dominated and exploited by foreign powers like the British and the French, as well as by the Japanese. Thus, reformers condemned foreign imperialism, but also demanded changes to Chinese culture and character, believing this was necessary to enable China to stand up to the world. Several reformers helped on this, or harped on this, I should say, including Dai Jitao, Lu Sun, and Sun Yat-sen. The latter called for a new breed of unselfish, patriotic, and heroic Chinese. So this leads to the May 4th movement. It started out as a student movement to protest the Versailles Treaty. Now, I don't want to get too far track off here than I have already gotten, so suffice it to say this movement gave new life to the followers of Sun. At the same time, it also helped to increase the profile in China of the Marxist movement. Then there is the Russian Revolution. Sun thought the Marxist class struggle was not relevant to China, but he was inspired by the idea of a classless society. So was Chiang. Indeed, it was Chiang who wrote in his diary that the revolution was a great event, one that he felt signaled a new era. Now, more than anything, I think what Chiang found inspiring was not the Marxist ideology, but the anti-imperialist sentiments that were inspired by events in Russia. It probably also helped when the new Russian government announced it would renounce its rights in Manchuria, and it would cancel the unequal treaties signed by the Tsarist government. So let's look a little bit now at Chiang and his leftist period. In the years immediately after World War I, he was inspired by leftist thinkers. I would say this isn't as surprising as one might think. For the next two decades or so, perhaps one could even argue for more than that, it was fashionable to espouse leftist ideology. 
Many saw it as the wave of the future. Academics and journalists promoted Marxism to a greater or lesser extent as a way to manage the economy in a scientific way. One such example was the late Walter Durante, who won the Nobel Prize, or I'm sorry, the Pulitzer Prize, for a series of articles published in the New York Times in 1931 about the Soviet Union. The journalist ignored the famine in Ukraine and praised the efforts of communists and Stalin. Another cheerleader was Lincoln Steffens, a muckraker. Uh, Steffens made his name publishing a series of articles in McClure's titled Tweed Days in St. Louis. He visited the Soviet Union in March 1919 on a three-week tour. He famously noted of the new Russia, quote, I have seen the future, and it works, end quote. So, Chang might be forgiven for having been caught up in the euphoria of the revolution and its immediate aftermath, because he certainly wasn't the only one. His diary shows us a bit of his thoughts on capitalism at this point. These writings are sprinkled with condemnation of the cunning and snobbery of the capitalists. He also wrote, quote, If we don't resist private capital, laborers will never have the chance to enjoy pleasure and freedom, end quote. Again, we can probably forgive his assessment as he's living in a country that was trying to shed its medieval trappings and move into the modern age. Definitely no easy task. Furthermore, China at this point had a massive peasant population, as well as powerful war warlord classes, so it isn't surprising to see him talk about the difficulties they were facing. However, having said that, Cheng started to change his tune when the Shanghai Stock Exchange opened in 1920. It was created by supporters of the KMT to fund the party. Now, believe it or not, Chang and a friend took out loans to create an investment firm to speculate in stocks. Chang was as successful in stock investment as he was at marriage. <laughs> in other words, not successful at all. Now, although his investments went up and down, his position in the party continued to rise. On September 20th, 1920, he was appointed chief of staff to the 2nd Guangdong Army, his highest position yet. By this time, the 2nd Army, supported by pirates and bandits, gained ground against southern warlords. Chang, winning battle after battle, was constantly on the move. During this successful period of his military career, Chang showed the stress of command. He often lashed out at subordinates and drew a reputation for having a volcanic temper. Sun Yat-sen, hearing the rumors of dissatisfaction amongst his men, personally wrote to Chang to ask him to rein in his temper, noting that his hatred of mediocrity and inability to control his anger often led to unnecessary arguments and made cooperation hard to come by. Quote, As you are shouldering the great and heavy responsibility of our party, you should sacrifice your ideals a little and try to compromise. End quote. Chang agreed, but found it was easier said than done. Indeed, his strong points, the intensity of his commitment to the cause, his desire to see the job done right, those were also his weaknesses. Chang believed everyone should be as dedicated as he was. Everyone should strive for perfection as he did. Honestly, at least in this regard, he reminds me a little bit of Steve Jobs, or at least the version portrayed in the excellent biography of him by Walter Isaacson. Now, in the previous episode, we discussed how Mao had issues with traditional Chinese beliefs about filial piety. He loved his mother, but not his father, and hated the idea that he was obligated to do what his father wished. Chang also loved his mother, and when she died on June 4, 1921, he left his post and did the duty of a traditional Chinese son. He planned her funeral and selected the burial site. This was an important time for Chang and his career moving forward. Approximately 34 years of age at this point, he took three months off from the fighting. He spent time walking around in the mountains and 
made a promise to adhere to the ideas of Neo-Confucianism. These were things like sincerity, rectitude, serenity, and determined action. Now, in my mind, the difference between Mao and Chang was stark. Mao never saw his flaws as that, flaws. Chang acknowledged them and tried to at least improve upon them. It was at this point that he determined it was his destiny to be one of modern China's great men. To prepare himself for a leadership role, he decided it was time to rein in his temperamental, impetuous, and judgmental nature via self-criticism, self-discipline, and the conscious development of his character. No doubt this was something Mao would never have done, instead insisting that it was the world that needed to change for him. One of the most interesting aspects of Chang's character, at least in my opinion, was his ability to suffer a defeat, accept blame for it, and then simply move on. An excellent example of this was his investment in the stock market. It appears his portfolio increased in value to about 200,000 silver dollars, only to collapse by 1922. He owed money to creditors, which he himself could not pay. However, this debt was taken care of, partly thanks to a payment by Sun Yat-sen himself, with the rest of it being forgiven thanks to the intervention of a Chinese gangster, Huang Jinrong, one of Shanghai's three most powerful mobsters. At the end of the day, this period in his life saw Chang turn into an even more hardcore leftist. Again, referring to historian Jay Taylor, the future leader of China had no affinity for capitalism or its adherents, something we've already discussed. However, make no mistake, he also believed that communism would never be successfully implemented in China. Today's show is sponsored by Unidragon. Everyone has faced the problem. What gift to choose? What to give yourself when you sit at home? What to give a friend or parents? What should you give your wife or husband? What to give to your children or a colleague at work? Unipuzzles by Unidragon solves this problem. Why do people love Unidragon puzzles? Each puzzle piece has its own unique shape. They're interesting for both adults and children. Each puzzle is packed in a premium wooden gift box. New puzzles are released every month, and they have an incredibly colorful design. My favorite is the Mandala Inexhaustible Abundance Puzzle. It's more than a puzzle. It's a piece of art. I've never seen anything like this. If you're looking for a gift that is memorable and you're tired of just giving out gift cards or the same old, same old, this is for you. Head over to unidragon.com right now and check out the Mandala or any of their other amazing puzzles. Use coupon code HISTORY10 and you'll get 10% off your first order. That's right, 10% off the most unique and amazing gift you've ever purchased. Just use HISTORY10 and get that great gift today. So far, Chang had shown himself to be both loyal and competent, but had yet to have that breakout moment that one needs if you're to rise to the top. For Chiang Kai-shek, that moment came in the summer of 1922. Sun had decided to remove the governor of Guangdong, Chen Zhongming. He was also the commander of the Guangdong army, by the way, and this caused a division within the army. Some of the members sided with the governor, while others sided with Sun. This forced Sun to have to escape to Canton in the dead of night. After he was out of harm's way, Sun sent a message to Chang, asking for immediate help. This would prove to be a turning point in Chang's career. He would help save Sun by sailing to Hong Kong, renting a launch, and traveling up the Pearl River to join with the leader of the KMT on the Yongfeng, which lay at anchor off the island of Wampao. Chang had shown himself to be loyal, but even more so, he'd shown that he had the tactical acumen as a field leader. He also had excelled as an urban guerrilla and even as a clandestine operative. Completely loyal, he was, however, not afraid to disagree with the leader. 
He might have had a rudimentary education, but he was a thinker who kept up with what was going on in the world. Courageous and honest, he was totally and completely loyal to Sun. Now, even though they had been defeated, Sun remained optimistic. This was because there was a new line of support they had acquired, the Soviet Union. An agent for the Comintern had recommended the Soviets should cooperate with the Kuomintang, the KMT or the Nationalist Party. As a matter of fact, he argued that a united front between the Chinese Communist Party, the CCP, and the KMT should be created. By this point, it had formed a small group in Shanghai. And when it came to the Communists, Sun was not interested in creating a formal union with them, but he was more than willing to let the CCP members join the KMT. Now at first, the CCP was not interested in this. But after being urged to reconsider, they reversed course and accepted the idea of becoming a bloc, one might say a caucus, within the umbrella of the KMT. Now, so what were the Soviets up to? They were hoping that the KMT would be open to communist influence. But, and this is really what they were hoping to achieve, it was their goal to create a friendly China, which could serve as a bulwark against both Great Britain and Japan. The reality is that at this point in time, the CCP was at best a minor party. It had only about 123 members, and few thought of it as a serious organization. Now, as for the KMT, it had several thousand members, so it wasn't exactly this huge movement. However, unlike the CCP, the KMT had members who were career military men, writers, teachers, and even a growing group of Chinese merchants and bankers who were highly patriotic. This was all well and good, but the most important point was that the KMT had an army. With this in mind, a high-ranking Soviet official, Adolf Chaffa, met with Sun in Shanghai and laid out a plan that included military aid and money which would be given to the KMT by Moscow. The plan also called for the reorganization of the KMT along Marxist-Leninist lines. This was when, in a long letter sent to Sun, Cheng set out his beliefs that the KMT needed to be ready to make, quote, unsavory but temporary allegiances, meaning with patriotic warlords willing to cooperate, end quote. Sun agreed, and upon his return to Canton, after it had been abandoned by Chen Jiaoming, Sun resumed the title of Grand Marshal, or Generalissimo, and not that of President. He now believed military methods were needed to win the struggle and unite the nation. Almost immediately, Chang was given an assignment to lead a delegation of KMT members to Russia. The purpose was to study its military and party systems. This was an important assignment for Chang, given the priority Sun assigned to relations with the Soviet Union. In a letter sent to both Lenin and Trotsky, Sun introduced Chang as his most trusted deputy. Chang would spend three months in the USSR, studying the Red Army, their military bases, as well as military academies and various organs of the Communist Party of the Soviet Union. The real goal that uh, Sun had given to Chang was to acquire Soviet assistance for a new military strategy in the northwest corner of China. The idea was to have Soviet assistance in creating a base in the area from which the KMT could attack Peking. Now, For their part, the Soviets did not like this idea. First, they were worried that military action against Peking, if supported by the Soviets outright, could provoke a reaction from the Japanese. Further, and perhaps most importantly, they were afraid the still small CCP was not strong enough to benefit from this. Trotsky also made it clear to Chang that while the Russians were more than willing to give up military aid and money to the cause, 
their assistance would not include troops. While all might have appeared well on the surface, the reality was fissures were already emerging between the communists in Russia and the KMT. Chang, invited to speak to the Comintern's executive committee, noted that while communism was a worthwhile goal to pursue in the next stage of China's revolution, the primary objective at this time was to unite all Chinese people in the effort to expel the imperialists from the country. He specifically noted the proletarian revolution was not appropriate for China. The XCOM, for its part, passed a resolution stating that the national liberation movement in China was dependent upon the proletariat and the peasants. This seeming contradiction of his speech upset Chang, as you can probably imagine. Not only had they directly contradicted what he just said, they repudiated Sun Yat-sen's desire to avoid class struggle. The future leader of the KMT, in a journal entry, called the Soviets conceited and autocratic, credulous and hesitating. Needless to say, he wasn't happy with what he saw or heard. In his visit to Petrograd, Chang found the city to be desolate and the morale of the citizens to be low. Now, this isn't to say Chang was totally turned against communism. Far from it. He was still virulently anti-imperialist and anti-capitalist. Two ideas he took from the Russians and implemented into the KMT's armies was the idea of a corps of political officers, as well as youth organization, uh, what the Russians called the Komsomol. Quote, this, the Komsomol, is the best policy of the CPSU, end quote, he wrote. When he returned home, the movement to reorganize the KMT along Marxist-Leninist lines was underway. 1925 was an important year in the history of the KMT and in Chang's life. First, Sun Yat-sen died of gallbladder cancer in March. This led to a power struggle between Chang and Wang Jingwei, chairman of the newly created political council. The story gets a bit complicated here, so for the sake of saving some time, I'm going to skip a bit of the details. Suffice it to say that both men, Cheng Wei and Chang Kai-shek, were on the left of the KMT at this point. Chang was even happy with his mostly communist political officers, one of whom was a man named Zhou Enlai. Zhou is one of the other extremely influential figures in the 20th century um, Chinese history. He was appointed by Chang as chief commissar in the first division of the Most Loyal First Corps. When we combine this with his diary entries from the period, it's obvious that Chang was without a doubt still a leftist. Zhou would later be extremely influential in the Communist Party of China. He was so influential and important that it was Zhou Enlai who met with Henry Kissinger when the United States and the People's Republic began secret talks about trying to warm relations between the two nations. He was designated as the successor to Mao in 1973. Now, in my mind, the problem was that, for Chang, the Comintern, which, remember, he was angry with, could have no role in Chinese affairs. However, at this point, the CCP was quite willing to accept any and all help from the Comintern, even if that meant paying lip service to a possible role for them. The rift was starting to widen now. By November 1925, at least one group of KMT veterans attempted to expel the communists from the party. Chang, however, was not ready to go so far. He told a meeting of cadets that he was willing to die for communism, and his charisma was becoming apparent to many young communists. In the end, relations between the CCP and the nationalists broke down. I don't believe it's due to any actual ideological principles. Mainly, at least in my mind, it was due to issues between some very large personalities. One of the important aspects of Chang's life I've avoided discussing, and that is his various marriages 
and concubines and all of that. In May 1927, he proposed to Song Mai Ling. Now, she was a fascinating woman, so let's talk about her for a moment or three. Born on March 5, 1898, Mei Ling, also known as Madame Cheng, would live to see the new millennium. She died on October 23, 2003, in New York City at the age of 103. She was the fourth of six children born to Charlie Sung, a wealthy businessman in Shanghai. Her siblings were Ai Ling, Ching Ling, whom later married Sun Yat-sen. All three sisters played an important role in Chinese history at this point, as they were all married to important men. Cheng had first met Mai Ling in 1922, and he had supposedly proposed to her, but she refused. Perhaps she didn't think he was famous and important enough? Either way, this time she said yes. She was 29, and he was 40. By this point, Cheng had divorced Mao Fumai, his second wife. He also promised his wife and her family, all of whom were Christian, that he would read the Bible and study the Christian religion. Madame Sung finally agreed to the marriage, and on December 1, 1927, the couple were married in Shanghai. It was the social event of the year. Needless to say, this was the perfect marriage for Cheng. His wife was attractive, wealthy, cosmopolitan, and educated in the United States. Again, referencing uh, the Taylor history, she would convey to the world and even to her own people an image of Chinese dignity and bravery during some of the most difficult times in that nation's history. An avid reader, she was a student of Chinese and world history and politics. Her sister Qingling, the third wife of Sun Yat-sen, actually disliked Chiang Kai-shek, but called the marriage a, quote, love match. For the next two decades, this power couple was the symbol of China. Hey guys, let me tell you about Fable Beard Company and their Christmas products. Yes, it's the happiest time of the year again, and when it comes to scents, no one outdoes Fable Beard Company. Christmas means limited edition holiday scents, and they've already launched the first one for 2021, the Gingerbread Man. This beard oil is a wonderful blend of warm gingerbread, rich toffee, and Christmas spices. It really is one that I know you're going to enjoy. Best of all, it comes in not only beard oil, which I love, but in beard butter and in a co-wash mixture of shampoo and conditioner designed especially for your beard. Now remember, Fable also has some amazing full-spectrum CBD beard products, including one of my all-time favorites, The Baker. This comes in beard oil, butter, and even a co-wash. Each product comes with full-spectrum cannabinoids to help with hair growth and strength. Each item contains 50 milligrams of CO2-expressed full-spectrum oil. I can tell you from my experience, my beard has never been softer. This one has a scent profile of fresh... Let me start that part again. This one has a scent profile of fresh baked pastry, warm vanilla sugar, and a hint of cinnamon spice. Head over to FableBeardCompany.com right now and load up on the perfect gift for the beard man in your life. And, as always... Remember to use coupon code SEAN15 for 15% off each and every order. I know you're going to love these products. Okay, let's get on to the show. While Mao might have been involved in the Communist Party by this point, the best way to sum up his early years in it was as a lukewarm believer. As a matter of fact, that is the title of the chapter, or a chapter I should say, in Mao, The Unknown Story. By the end of 1920, he had married a second wife, Kai Hui, and Moscow was pressing forward with its efforts to cause trouble in China. A Chinese army was secretly training in Siberia. It was also building up a large intelligence network, with a KGB station at the time called the Cheka in Shanghai. They also had agents in various cities in China, including Canton and, of course, Peking. Thus, on July 23, 1921, the Chinese Communist Party 
held its first Congress in Shanghai. Attended by 13 people, representing 57 members, the delegates were either journalists, teachers, or students. The show was run by emissaries from Moscow. Mao himself spoke little and had almost no impact on the proceedings. It might be surprising to some, but the reality was that Mao was seen as somewhat of a provincial and was more interested in mainly listening. Now, part of the problem at this point was the fact that the party was dependent on money from Moscow. As Professor Chen put it, taking their money meant taking their orders. The reality was, however, that without funding from Moscow, the CCP would not be able to even do the basics, such as publishing literature or uh, organizing labor movements. Furthermore, the CCP was one of many different communist groups that existed in China at that time. In fact, there were at least seven different groups, one of which claimed to have as many as 11,000 members. Of course, without Russian money, they all collapsed. I mention this because Mao, unlike Chen, had no problem taking money from the Russians. He was a realist. One might also say that the fact that Russian money transformed his life was another aspect of his calculations. Having always been short of money, he suddenly saw an increase in his monthly income. He was now able to live a comfortable life as a professional revolutionary. He gave up his job as a journalist and the one as headmaster of a school. It was at this point that he developed his habit of sleeping long into the day and then staying up reading all night. Now, interestingly, unlike most of the dictators of the 20th century who were founders of a movement, people like Lenin, Mussolini, and Hitler, Mao did not inspire a passionate following through oratory. Instead, he looked for recruits amongst his closest friends. Mainly, he wanted people who would simply follow his orders. Now, there were quite a few young people in Hunan who were interested in communism, including the man who eventually became Mao's number two and president of China, Liu Xiaoqi, as well as several others. Mao was stationed in Hunan, and he was the CCP branch boss there. Perhaps surprisingly, there was no party committee under Mao, and meetings were rare. There was just Mao giving orders, although he was sure to report to Shanghai on a regular basis. Now in the end, Mao was, at best, ineffective at organizing labor and recruiting, which led to his being dropped from the party's second Congress in July 1922. This was a momentous occasion for the party, as it passed a charter and endorsed the idea of joining the Comintern. This meant formally accepting control of the party by Moscow. Later on, Mao would try to explain away his absence, but he was in danger of losing his nice position and thus his nice paycheck. This spurred Mao into action. He visited a mine in April of 22, and then in May, he went to Yuan, the coal mining center, and I hope I didn't butcher that name uh, too much. It's called Anyuan. He also led various demonstrations and strikes. He also finally set up the Hunan Party Committee. However, and this is important, Mao, at this early date, already showed his dictatorial leadership style. Quote, I had many meetings at Chairman Mao's house, and apart from asking questions, I had no chance to speak at all. In the end, it was always what Chairman Mao said that went. The party in Hunan already had its own leader and its own distinctive style, different from the party in Shanghai, end quote. This quote that I just said was from future president Liu Xiaoqi. In the meantime, Mao realized that he needed to mend fences with the center of power. Moscow wanted the Chinese communists to do something bizarre, something the people in Shanghai found themselves at odds with. They were ordered to join another party, the KMT. Moscow needed someone who would support its position, and they happened to find that someone, Mao. 
At the same time, and this is September 1922, Sun, stationed in Canton, needed Soviet backing to help him build a force capable of conquering China. If he could get that support, he'd support the Soviet occupation of Outer Mongolia as well as allow the Russians to occupy the huge, mineral-rich province of Xinjiang in northwestern China. Now, as we've seen, Sun was ambitious and not against doing whatever was necessary to achieve an immediate goal. He also had something the CCP did not have at that time, huge numbers of registered party members. Thus, in January 1923, the Soviet Politburo decided to give full backing to the KMT using funds from the Comintern. The decision was endorsed by the up-and-coming Stalin, who had begun to take an interest in China. One advisor to Lenin noted that Sun was now their man. Quote, his price was two million Mexican dollars maximum, end quote, or about two million gold rubles. They felt it was worth the money to buy off Sun. The Russians realized Sun had his own goals and was simply trying to use them just as they were using him. The Russians wanted the CCP to be Johnny on the spot to ensure Sun towed the party line, thus they ordered the Chinese communists join the KMT. In a secret session in Moscow, Stalin laid out the plan. Quote, we can't give directives out of here, Moscow, openly. We do this through the Communist Party of China and other comrades, confidentially, end quote. In other words, the Russians wanted to use the Chinese Communist Party as a sort of Trojan horse to manipulate the far larger KMT. But the CCP leaders, starting at the top with Professor Chen, were opposed to this. In their minds, the KMT rejected communism, and Sun was just another unscrupulous politician who was simply in it for power. The Russians were facing a revolt and had to do something. Thus, the pragmatist Mao was brought to Shanghai. He embraced the Russian strategy and promptly joined the KMT himself. Part of the reasoning behind Mao's decision was that, at the end of the day, he didn't believe in his tiny party's chances, nor did he think communism had broad appeal. He even said this at the party's third congress in June 1923. He believed their only hope for creating a communist China was through a full-on Russian invasion. Now, he actually told the Congress, quote, The revolution has to be brought into China from the north by the Russian army, end quote. Interestingly enough, this is basically what would happen 20 years later. Now, in the meantime, his enthusiasm for the plan set up by Moscow shot Mao to the core of party leadership, under, of course, the Russian eye. He was their man in the party at this point, which is ironic. After the CCP took over China in 1949, he was not so willing to follow the Moscow party line anymore. Indeed, in Richard C. Thornton's book, Odd Man Out, Truman, Stalin, Mao, and the Origins of the Korean War, we see Mao bristle at his treatment in the winter of 1949 at the hands of Stalin. But that's a story for another day. It turns out that at this point, Mao was quite active in the Nationalist Party and became one of 16 alternate members to its top body, the Central Executive Committee. For about a year or so, he did most of his work in the Nationalist office in Shanghai. He helped form the Hunan Nationalist branch, which became one of the largest for the party. He even went so far as to seldom attend meetings of the CCP itself. Now, this became a problem for him as his Russian patron left and was replaced by Mikhail Borodin. The problem wasn't so much with Borodin. Mao got on with him well enough. The problem was in defending himself from the ideological purists in the CCP. Mao, ideologically weak, had difficulties in that he seemed unable to draw a line between the two parties. So here's a quote from a letter. This letter was from Sergei Dalin to another Russian, um, Wojtynski, 
dated 30th March 1924. Quote, what you would hear from CC Central Committee Secretary Mao, undoubtedly a placeman of Marings, would make your hair stand on end. For instance, that the Nationalist Party was and is a proletarian party and must be recognized by the Communist International as one of its sections. This character represented the party in the Socialist Youth League. I have written to the party's CC and asked it to appoint another representative. End quote. Mao ended up being duly fired from his position and found himself not even invited to the next CCP Congress scheduled to take place in January 1925. He left Shanghai and went home. At this point, at the age of 31, the future looked bleak. His setbacks during these years in the CCP are still kept tightly covered up in China. Mao did not want it known that he was ineffective at party work. He also wanted it kept quiet that he had not been not just a member of the KMT, but an extremely keen member of that group. Finally, the last thing he wanted to get out was that he was ideologically impure. In the aftermath of Sun's death, Mao began to try and spruce up his credentials and gain the attention of the new leader of the KMT, Wang. By September 1925, he was given key jobs in the Nationalist Party, and he was Wang's stand-in, running the propaganda department, as well as the editor of the Nationalist new journal, Politics Weekly. Furthermore, in February 1926, Wang appointed him a founding member of the Nationalist Peasant Movement Committee. Now, at the age of 32, Mao finally began to take an interest in peasants and their affairs. Many assume, even to this day, that Mao had been a champion of the peasants, but that was clearly not the case. It was at this point, with Russian supervision, that the nationalists in Hunan gave peasant associations their blessing and their money. Thus, by the end of the year, associations sprang up throughout the countryside and the social order was turned upside down. One thing to keep in mind, since 1912, when the country became a republic, violence was endemic. Warlords had been fighting sporadic wars for at least a decade, and there were over 40 changes to the central government. However, the thing the warlords were sure to maintain was the social structure. Thus, life for the civilians often went on as usual, so long as they did not get caught up in the crossfire. However, now that the nationalists were following Russian instructions aimed at bringing about a Soviet-style revolution, all of that changed. The social order began breaking down for the first time. Violence erupted as poor peasants helped themselves to the food and money of the rich. Chaos reigned in the countryside. This was a brutal period in Chinese history, and Mao appears to have had no problem with it. Indeed, he noted in March 1927 that he felt, quote, a kind of ecstasy never experienced before. Mao, I think it's safe to say, showed himself to be a Leninist at heart. He was, in other words, a communist of the Soviet type, one who was quite happy to use violence to achieve his goals, the obtaining of power. As the violence in China accelerated, the Nationalist Army began turning against the Soviet model they were following. A good amount of the army was from Hunan, and the officers discovered that their parents and relatives were being arrested and abused. But the suffering wasn't only being visited upon those who were better off. The rank-and-file members were also being hit. Professor Chen, in a report to the Comintern in June, noted that the money being sent home by ordinary troops was being confiscated, and they were, quote, repelled by the excesses, end quote. Now here, I think, is the point at which the nationalists, or at least some of them, had to decide to break with the communists and the Soviet game plan. 
A good number of nationalists were unhappy with the leaders of the party, adopting the Soviet party line at the very point that Sun Yat-sen adopted it in the early part of the 1920s. By January 1926, they reached the boiling point when the smaller CCP, with less than 10,000 members, seemed to have hijacked the KMT, which had several hundred thousand members. Under Wang, one-third of the delegates were communists, another one-third were on the left, amongst whom a large contingent were secretly communists. Thus, not only had Moscow succeeded in planting its Trojan horse within the Nationalist Party, but they also had infiltrated many moles. Thus, a year later, mob violence condoned by the party led a good number of prominent nationalists to call for a break with both Moscow's control as well as the Chinese communists. So what happened? First in Peking, on April 6, 1927, the authorities raided Russian premises and seized a large stash of documents, revealing that Moscow was trying to overthrow the government and replace it with a client. They also found evidence of secret Soviet links to the CCP. Thus, CCP leaders such as Li Chao, who were living in the Russian compound, were arrested and executed. These raids were widely publicized, as were the documents. The proof of Soviet meddling in Chinese affairs had two effects. It angered the Chinese population, and it alarmed Western powers. The KMT had little choice now but to disassociate themselves from both the Russians and the CCP, or they would be seen as part of a conspiracy to turn China into a Soviet client state. Thus, the commander-in-chief of the Nationalist Army, Chiang Kai-shek, acted. While he might have had communist leanings, as we've seen before, it looks like Chiang, by this point, was deeply against Moscow's plan to divide Chinese society into classes and get them to fight each other. Ironically, this is what Mao did, and did often when he was in power. Now, there was some back and forth, but the moment the government in Peking published these documents, Chiang acted. On April 12th, he issued a notice which called for communists to be arrested. He moved first in Shanghai. In a few days, there were at least 300 deaths on the communist side. In Shanghai, Chiang broke the ability of the communists to operate in public, although amazingly, the leadership of the party remained intact. Once Chiang started killing communists in Shanghai, Wang Qingwei, some 300 miles inland, broke with the communists as well and submitted to Chiang. From here on in, Chiang built a regime that would last 22 years. As for Mao, his nationalist mentor was planning to, and then broke with, the communists and blamed them for every atrocity committed. As someone who had vocally called for violence, Mao had to say goodbye to the KMT and Wang. In order to remain in the nationalists, Mao would have had to renounce violence and become a moderate. He would be forced to respect the social order, and this was something he could not do. At the age of 24, nearly 10 years earlier, Mao had expressed his craving for violent and drastic social change. Quote, The country must be destroyed and then reformed. People like me long for its destruction. End quote. The Soviet model suited him just fine. Mao had to ensure his personal safety first. Then he would use the CCP and the Russians for his own ends. This decision, taken in the summer of 1927 at the age of 33, marked the political coming of age of one of the 20th century's most notorious and important leaders. Really, as you can see, 1927 was a momentous year for China, Mao, and Chiang. All right, so that's it for this episode. It was way longer than I originally intended. Um, if you are enjoying the show, please consider supporting us by joining the Patreon. For just $10 a month, you'll get access to both 
Patreon-only series, 1983, the year the world almost ended, and Quagmire in the Middle East. Now, if you aren't into Patreon, you can always purchase products from one of our sponsors, especially Fable, for which you'll get a nice discount. Finally, when you shop on Amazon, use the linked resources at the website to enter into Amazon, and they'll throw some pennies our way at no extra cost to you. All right, well, I'm Sean, and you've been listening to Episode 8 of Season 4, The War in the Pacific. Until next time, have a great day. Shut it off for our rent. Oh, please, oh, oh, like it. I know. Wait a minute.